We're in Hosea chapter 13. Hosea 13. Last week, we looked at Hosea 12. And Hosea was stressing one of the attributes of God. Anybody remember what the attribute was that we looked at last week? That he was stressing so much? What was the attribute that he was pointing to last week? We've got a, a free book from Forrest for anyone who can answer this easy question. Who said that? Faithfulness. Oh, yes, the faithfulness of Yahweh. Yeah, he, he pointed out the multiple times that God had to endure the repeated failures and sin of Israel. He had to endure their repeated demands for a human king because they didn't want him to be their king. Hey, Chris, can we turn it down just a little bit? Thank you, sir. He had to endure their betrayal as they ran off to Baal, as they took his sacrifices and gave them to a piece of metal. They made golden calves and they worshipped them as God. Israel had been unfaithful, <laughs> repeatedly unfaithful. And to prove this, he pointed them back to a patriarch. Anybody remember the patriarch that he pointed them back to? Huh? Well, one person remembers it. He pointed them back to Jacob, who later became Israel. And last week we saw that Yahweh, despite their unfaithfulness, Yahweh remained faithful to them. And he fulfilled their, his promises not only to them, but he fulfilled his promises to their forefather and their namesake, Jacob. Despite all the nation had done, despite all of their unfaithfulness, all of their sin, all of their idolatry, God was still faithful to his promises. And Israel's faithfulness was described by Hosea. It was described by Hosea in Hosea chapter 6, verse 4. Here's how he described Israel's faithfulness. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. Their faithfulness lasted for a few fleeting moments and then vanished. It was like the dew. It's here this morning, and then it's going to be completely gone within a few moments. And Hosea was not finished with this illustration of morning dew. He actually revives that illustration here in chapter 13. And this time, he doesn't apply it to their faithfulness. He applies the illustration to Israel itself. Notice chapter 13, verse 3. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud and like dew which soon disappears. This is a very illustrative way of describing God wiping Israel off the map. Israel, of course, is the northern kingdom. And just like their faithfulness to Yahweh, they as a nation will disappear. They will go away. So that's why this class is entitled Ephraim, the dew that disappears. In chapter 13, he's going to start by just explaining the reason for their judgment. That's going to be verses 1 through 3. 
And then in verses 4 through 16, he's going to give you three graphic pictures of how Israel will disappear or how Ephraim will disappear. So let's begin with the very first section. If you have your handout, the very first on your handout, the reason for their disappearing. Ephraim's pride. Ephraim's pride. In chapter 12, well, excuse me, let me read the first part of verse 1. It says, when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. In chapter 12, he referred them back to Jacob, their forefather, and he used Jacob as an illustration. Here he continues the same pattern, and this time he points to one of their forefathers. The forefather is a guy named Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the sons of Jacob. Excuse me, one of the sons of Joseph, not Jacob. Joseph, anybody know his brother's name? Manasseh. Genesis 48.1, Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Manasseh and Ephraim, excuse me, are both the sons of Joseph. They are the grandsons of Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. In the last line of Genesis 35, 22, it actually says that. Now there are 12 sons of Jacob. But there is not a tribe named after Joseph. The other 11 sons of Jacob have a tribe. Joseph's tribe instead go, excuse me, yes, Joseph's tribe instead goes to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And they are elevated to half-tribes. 1 Chronicles 5.1 says this is, is because Reuben lost his birthright after he engaged in some sexual sin. Genesis 35.22, it came about while Israel was dwelling in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And because of that, Reuben lost his birthright, and so they're going to get the twelve tribes through these two sons of Joseph. These two, Ephraim and Manasseh, essentially received the birthright of Jacob, as if they were actual direct sons of Jacob. Uh, Genesis 48, if you want to turn there real quick, has an interesting story that helps us understand why he's talking about these two. Genesis 48, starting in verse 8. Genesis 48 is the story of Joseph bringing his two sons to Jacob to receive their blessing. Remember, Jacob stole his brother's blessing. Now Joseph is going to bring his two sons to Jacob to receive Jacob's blessing. Genesis 48, starting in verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel, that would be Jacob, were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. Okay, so here's the picture. 
defeats Jacob. He takes Manasseh and he moves Manasseh to his left, which would be Jacob's right. And he puts Ephraim to Jacob's left. That way Jacob can use his right hand to place it on Manasseh, the older son's head. And he can put his left hand on Ephraim's head, who is the younger son. The older son gets the better blessing, the right hand blessing. The younger son gets the lesser blessing, the left hand. Everybody follow? Okay. Verse 15. Uh, Excuse me. Verse 14, but Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands. Although Manasseh was the firstborn, he blessed Joseph and said, the God God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel and who, who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads and may... My name live on in them, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the, in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his, what his father had done, laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He will also become a people, and he also will be great. However, the younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. The greater blessing went to the younger son. Jacob had elevated Ephraim above his brother by crossing his hands and giving the older brother's blessing to the younger son. And Israel said that is exactly what's supposed to happen because the younger will be greater than the older. Everybody follow me? Everybody with me? Okay. And this is why, when you go back to Hosea 13, this is why Hosea refers to Israel as Ephraim, because Ephraim indeed became the greater of the two tribes. Ephraim became the largest tribe in the northern kingdom. It was, excuse me, it was Ephraim in 1 Kings 11 that selected the new king, Jeroboam I. This tribe had become so powerful that in Hosea 13, it says that when Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. Literally, there was shaking. They were shaking with fear. They had become a very powerful people. And it was Ephraim, this tribe, that had selected Jeroboam the first. What did Jeroboam the first do that was so horrendous? Yes. Yes. Good. He set up the two altars, one in Dan and one in Bethel, and he put up golden calves there and told them to worship the calves as God. He was from the tribe of Ephraim. The more powerful this tribe became, the more they pushed the entire nation away from Yahweh. 
verse 1 again. He exalted himself in Israel, exalted himself. He lifted himself up. He became proud and arrogant. And in his arrogance, he defied Yahweh. And he taught others to defy Yahweh. Verse 1 again, but through Baal, he did wrong and died. More directly from the Hebrew, and with Baal, he became guilty. He became guilty of a crime against Yahweh when he set up the golden calves, when he told people to bow down and worship them. He became proud and he actually changed a feast day of Yahweh and he changed it into a feast day for Baal. That's in 1 Kings 12.32. He had actually received a miraculous warning about his sin. This would be Jeroboam. And about the path that he is on. He was in the temple of his fake God next to the altar and a true man of God shows up and warns him. And Jeroboam didn't like it, and he points his finger at the man of God and says, Seize him! And as he did that, his hand shriveled up and withered, so he couldn't retract it. You would think that would get his attention. He then tells the man of God, Would you please pray for me? 1 Kings 13. Would you please pray for me that God would undo this? And Yahweh undoes it. And yet he still doesn't repent. He still holds on to his sin. 1 Kings 13, uh, 33. After this event, Jeroboam did not return from his evil way, but again he made priests of the high places, and from, all, from among all the people, any who would, he ordained to be priests of the high places. This event became sin to the house of Jeroboam, even to blot it out and to destroy it from off the face of the earth. His sin brought about divine judgment. God was going to wipe out his line. That last phrase of Hosea 13.1, but through Baal he did wrong and died. That's the pronouncement of Jeroboam. You and your descendants will be cut off. You and your descendants will die. Was the tribe of Ephraim guilty? Of course. Was the entire nation, the northern kingdom, guilty? You better believe it. They all engaged in it. Verse Two, Hosea 13, 2, and now they sin more and more. When he says, and now, he's actually fast-forwarding 200 years. Because he's talking about the time when Hosea is writing. But Jeroboam the first was 200 years before. So this is actually a little leap in time. He's fast-forwarding to the days of Hosea. The sin that began under Jeroboam the first 200 years earlier was still there, and it had become normal in the northern kingdom to engage in that behavior. And now they sin more and more. You might say they continue in their sin. They do it again and again and again. Hosea 13, 2 again, and make for themselves molten images, idols skillfully made from their silver. They make images for themselves. That could be translated, they make images according to themselves. Their images were reflections of who they truly were and what they truly were. Hosea writes, they were skillfully made. It's an interesting term. The skill reference here is the kind of skill that is acquired. It's not skill that comes naturally to you. It's the skill that takes years of practice, of perfecting your craft. 
they had had a lot of practice at making idols. They enjoyed it. And they became really good at making these idols. They were skilled and experienced. They had 200 years of practice. The images may have depicted what they thought was a god, but Hosea very clearly tells them these are not gods. Hosea uh, 13 verse 2 again, all of them, all of the idols, the work of craftsmen. The term here is better for a metal worker. It refers to a person who melts down metal and then pours it into a cast. The, these idols are nothing more than lumps of metal. Useless, worthless, blind, dumb, and deaf. And they worship them as God. Habakkuk expressed the same sentiment about idols. Habakkuk 2, 18 and 19, he says, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood, for its maker trusts in its own handiwork, when he fashions speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone, Arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. The prophets didn't mince words, did they? Habakkuk pronounces a wall on anyone who speaks of a piece of metal and thinks the metal is going to respond to it. Ephraim's not depicted here as speaking to calves, but they do have something to say about the worship of the calves. Hosea 13, 2 again. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Okay, there's a whole bunch of debate on this verse. A whole bunch of debate because it can be translated in two different ways. The first way it can be translated is this. Let those who sacrifice men kiss the calves. In that sense, if you translate it that way, that would be talking about people who, who offer human sacrifices. And when you offer the human sacrifice, you go up and you kiss the golden calf. Now, this did happen. The practice of human sacrifice was occurring in Israel. They passed their children through the fire to the God of Molech. 2 Kings 17, uh, 17, 21, 6, 23, 10, all mention passing the children through the fire. And that would be a form of human sacrifice. But Hosea never mentions it. If you translate it that way here, it would be the first and only time Hosea mentions human sacrifice. And so I think the immediate context would be say that's probably not what he intends. The second view is represented by your NASB. Let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. The men here are priests who have been commissioned to lead the sacrifices, and they are called in the midst of that worship to kiss the calf, to give honor, to give reference, to worship the statue. Kissing is actually depicted in Scripture as a form of worship. When you kiss an idol, it's a form of worship. Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that he may not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. That's a very well-known verse, right? Speaking about worshiping Christ, the NASB translate as homage. The term there is kiss the Son. The practice of doing homage or kissing idols is also mentioned in 1 Kings 19, 18. 
well-known story of Elijah, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. To kiss the calf was to worship it. And the entire northern kingdom was engaged in rampant, continual idolatry. They had become proud and arrogant. They had abandoned Yahweh and thought that they could get along without him. We're wealthy, we're prosperous, we have military might, we have our own king. Who needs Yahweh? Hosea 13, verse 3, Yahweh gives his response. Therefore, they will be like the morning cloud, and like dew which soon disappears, like chaff which is blown away from the threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. I don't think I need to go through and explain every single one of those illustrations. They all refer to the same thing. What's Yahweh's response to their idolatry? He's going to make them like morning, the morning cloud, like dew, and like smoke from a chimney. He's going to make them vanish. So simple, so pointed, it's hard to even stop and explain it. Let me put this in modern lingo. I'm going to wipe you off the map. You're not going to exist anymore. Ephraim's pride, his self-exaltation led him to worship a false god. And for that pride, for that false worship, God pronounces a swift judgment. And the rest of, that, of this chapter is going to show you and illustrate that judgment. How is God going to make Ephraim disappear? Lost my spot. Well, let's find out. The second one is the main point, Ephraim's punishment. Ephraim's punishment. So from here on out, from verse 4 all the way through to the end of the chapter is Ephraim's punishment. And there's going to be three pictures that he's going to use to describe their punishment. And he uses some of the harshest and most graphic terms to explain their punishment that's coming. The first one. Ephraim will be devoured by a lion. Look at verse 4. Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt. Notice the first person pronoun, I. This is Yahweh speaking. Their crime had been personal. Their attack was on Yahweh himself. And Yahweh turns back to them. And he says, I have been the Lord your God. I have been Yahweh. I have been the covenant God. I have been the God who's made covenant with you. I have been faithful to my covenant with you. And I've been that way since you left Egypt. And oh, by the way, I'm the guy who got you out of Egypt. I'm the one who redeemed you. Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He redeemed them. He purchased them from Egypt. They were his. They belong to him. Exodus 19, 4 through 5. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you would indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. They were supposed to be his people. That was the rightful response after he redeemed them. 
it should have resulted in them being committed to Yahweh and to Yahweh alone. It should have resulted in them not having any other gods. Verse 4 again. And you were not to know any god except me. This is just a restatement of what God had told them in the law. In Deuteronomy 5, 6 and 7, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh had devoted himself to Israel to the exclusion of everyone else. And Israel was to return that devotion back to Yahweh and to be exclusively devoted to him. They were supposed to do that for a couple of reasons. One, he deserved it. He redeemed them. Two, he's worthy of it. He's their creator. He's far more glorious than any of those idols they could have built. Hosea gives another reason. Hosea 13.4, again, For there is no Savior besides me. Israel had become a great nation while they were in Egypt. They went from 70 people to roughly 2 million. Exodus 1 says they were so big and so powerful that the king of Egypt was fearful of Israel. But it wasn't their military might, the 600,000 fighting men that they had in the wilderness, that got them out of Egypt. It wasn't their great war strategies that delivered delivered the lands of Canaan to them. It wasn't Baal who brought them wealth and prosperity. It wasn't Baal who delivered them from their enemies while they were in the land. No, their Savior was Yahweh. He was the one doing all of that. All of these other gods were just made up. They were a work of an imagination. They were works of a craftsman. Only Yahweh could deliver. Only Yahweh could save. Isaiah 43 11 and 12, he says, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. If you want to see repeated statements of he's the only God, Isaiah 43, 44, and 45, he repeats it multiple times. Yahweh is the only Savior. That was true back then, still true today. And Yahweh did fulfill every promise he made to be a savior when he sent his son to die and to bear the penalty for sinners. If we would just turn back to him and trust him rather than ourselves or something else. Isaiah 45 21 and 22, he says, Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this form of old? Who has long since declared it? It is not I. Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Interestingly enough, that was the verse, Isaiah 45, 22, that Charles Spurgeon was converted with, sitting in a little Methodist chapel one snowy morning. They should have worshipped and adored God because he is the only Savior. 
Hosea 13, verse 5, I cared for you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. The opening phrase here, I cared for you, it's not the normal word for care. It's the word which means to know. It's the Hebrew word yada. It was used in verse 4. It says, and you were not to know any god except me. They knew other gods, they just didn't know Yahweh. They didn't know him, but he knew them. He knew them intimately. The term to know doesn't just refer to intellectual knowledge. It refers to a practical, deep, intimate relationship. It's practical knowledge. This term is often used for the sexual union, Adam knew Eve. The NASB translates it as care for you because the knowledge of Yahweh The knowledge of his people led him to care for them. His intimate relationship led to his provision and his care. And where did he care for them? The end of that verse, he says, in the land of drought. The term drought here is debated. It's debated because this is the only time in the Hebrew text it shows up in the Bible. Uh, It's in parallel with wilderness. And so this is likely a reference to the wilderness experience when they had no water and they were struggling to drink, and God provided for them. That care and provision lasted from the wilderness, it lasted into the promised land, and it lasted all the way up until Hosea's day. Hosea 13, 6. As they had their pasture, they became satisfied. Refers to the practice of keeping and raising livestock, to have their pasture is to have livestock and to raise them. So as they went about keeping their livestock, as they experienced the blessings of Yahweh, as their livestock were fertile and had many young livestock and their herds grew, they became wealthy. They became prosperous. And they became satisfied with their prosperity without Yahweh. The prosperity was enough for them. Hosea 13.6, he says, And being satisfied. They were satisfied in their prosperity. You know, there's a song of Moses in Deuteronomy. And he actually describes this. This idea of being satisfied in wealth rather than in God. Deuteronomy 13. He says, Curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs and rams, the breed of Bashan and goats, with the finest of wheat and of the blood of grapes you drank wine. But uh, Jeshuron, which is a nickname for Israel, grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick and sleek. Then he forsook the Lord who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave birth to you. It's almost as if Moses was writing about Hosea's day. Deuteronomy 8, verse 12, When you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, 
And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's like they should have known this was coming. He told them this several hundred years before. End of Hosea 13, that's exactly what happens. Hosea 13, 6, their heart became proud, therefore they forgot me. The term for pride here refers to lifting oneself up. Exempting yourself. Exempt from the law, which forbids idolatry. Exempt from the requirements that came with the covenant. Exempt from the demands of God's holy law. And now free to live lives of wanton pleasure, dishonesty, and violence. They exempted themselves. We can do whatever we want. The human heart only has enough room to worship one God. You can't worship two. Jesus said this in Matthew 6, 24. You cannot serve masters, for you will either hate one and love the other. You can't hold on to Baal and Yahweh. That's what they tried to do. And they ended up just hating Yahweh. Ephraim couldn't exalt itself, couldn't worship their own gods, and serve Yahweh. And he says, they forgot me. Forgetting Yahweh is the same as turning from him. Pretending that you don't need him. You might say they forgot to remember him. To forget is the opposite of remembering. There's an interesting verse in Deuteronomy 9-7, but I don't have time. They were proud, they were arrogant, and Yahweh was not pleased. Hosea 13, verse 7, So I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lie and wait by the wayside. The term for lion, you know what it means? It means lion. Everything that you think of lions, that's what it's talking about. When you think of a lion, that's what he means. You don't approach a lion. You don't get intimate with a wild lion, do you? You see a lion and you stay away from it. Lions are not going to come to your help. If a lion shows up, you have every right and you have every reason to be fearful. And if you're not, there's something wrong with you. God is no longer pictured as a loving and compassionate father to Israel. He is now a wild lion. He's also pictured as a leopard, and again, leopard here is not referring to a domesticated cat. They're not as large and powerful as lions, but they're still dangerous. The lion focuses in on Yahweh's power. The leopard focuses in on his cunning and his speed. They'll sneak up on their prey. They'll attack with little notice. And so God's going to do the same thing to Ephraim. Hosea 13, 8, I will encounter them like a bear robbed of her cubs. And again, I don't need to explain what a bear is. You know, little baby bears are really cute. When I was little, we, we would go out in the mountains and, you know, we always knew if you see a baby bear, admire from a distance. 
because the only thing more dangerous than a baby bear is a mama bear who thinks you're about to take her cubs away from her. They are brutal when they think you're about to hurt their little babies. And God says, I'm going to be like a mama bear after you just took her cub. And when he finds you, when that mama bear finds you, she will express her displeasure with a terrifying level of violence and savagery. Hosea 13, 8 again. And I will tear open their chests. Notice again, I, this is Yahweh speaking. I will do this. I will tear open your chest. The English translation doesn't make it sound, it makes it sound bad. Hebrew, I think, makes it sound worse. I will tear open your heart cavity. The term for tear here is actually metaphorical. It's used to refer to the ripping of a ventricle of the heart. And this would happen to Israel in 722 when the Assyrian army invaded. History does record the words of an Assyrian king, King Sennacherib. You remember him from the book of Kings? And it records what he says he did when he invaded lands. You, you might find this interesting. Here's what he said. I cut their throats like lambs, like the many waters of a storm. I made their gullets and entrails run down upon the earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot were besmettered with blood and filth. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Sounds to me like the Assyrian king agreed. It's exactly what they did. Hosea 13, again, there I will also devour them like a lioness, as a wild beast would tear them. I don't know about you, I read that, I think of the Discovery Channel. Now I don't have to explain the illustration, do I? I don't need to explain what a wild animal does when it gets its prey. It's without mercy. They start eating before the thing is dead. There's just no mercy there. It's an image of God's complete hatred for what they're doing. Second, Israel will be deprived of a king, starting in verse 9. It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Let's begin with the end of the verse. He says that you are against me, your help. Ephraim thought turning from Yahweh was a good idea. They thought Baal was going to be their help. That Baal was going to provide them food and oil and wine. This is actually pictured in Hosea 2, verse 5. He says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, these other gods, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Israel thought, hey, we can go after these other gods and it will be good for us. It will turn out well. But it wasn't Baal who provided all those things. It was Yahweh. Hosea 2.8, if you want to go back and read it, he says, I gave you those things. By turning to Baal, they turn from their only help. 
And he says it's to your destruction. How is it to their destruction? Well, first, Yahweh's going to take his provision back. Hosea 2, 9, Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest time and my new wine in the season. I will also take away my wool and my flax given to cover her nakedness. I'm going to take all of my provision back when Assyria comes in and wipes you out. Second, when Yahweh comes upon them like a lion, all that stuff isn't going to do you any good when you're dead. And Baal can do nothing to stop it. Baal's not going to stop this. He's not going to be your savior. Your kings won't be able to stop him. All of your military might won't be able to stop him. You abandoned the one person that could actually help you. And now you're not going to have a savior. Verse 10, where now is your king? That he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested. Give me kings and princes. Don't you just hear the sarcasm? I mean, that's just dripping with sarcasm. You asked for a king. This is what you wanted. And I gave you what you wanted. Now go back to your king and ask him to save you. Oh, wait. Your king can't save you. Your king is a vacillating coward. I don't mean that to be rude. The guy knew Assyria was coming. And he paid Assyria off so he could avoid the fight. He had no intention of fighting Assyria. He had no intention of defending the nation. He would rather pay them off. And he didn't even want to do that because then he went down to Egypt and tried to pay off the king of Egypt to stop the king of Assyria. You wanted a king? You've got it. You got exactly what you asked for. That should warn us in our prayer life. Be careful what you ask for. God might give it to you. God gave them king. Not to reward them. It was a judgment. It wasn't a father blessing a child. It was a judge giving a penalty. He gave them a useless, worthless king. In effect, he deprived them of a king. Verse 11, I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. The statement, I gave you a king in my anger, can fit a couple of different contexts. First, it could refer back to Saul, the very first king of the united nation of Israel. Saul was actually a judgment on the nation. They had been begging for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. 1 Samuel 8, 4. 1 Samuel 8.22, God gives them what they ask for. And Saul turned out to be a complete failure. Then God said, okay, well, I'm not going to give you Saul. I have another king for you. I have King David. This is the guy I've chosen. He's a man after my own heart, and his lineage will rule. But Ephraim rejected even that king. It was the lineage that the Messiah would ultimately come from. And Ephraim, remember, 1 Kings 12, they rejected even the house of David. We have nothing to do with you. We don't want your king. And they began installing their own kings. Kings like Jeroboam. And his successors were worse than he was. Because they got into power by killing the guy ahead of them. And they went through king after king after king after king. And God says all of those are going to vanish. 
I'm just going to do away with them. I'm going to take away your monarch. I'm going to take away your king. You're You're going to cease to be a kingdom. Never to be heard of or seen again. God would punish Ephraim by depriving them of a king. Third. Last one. Verse 12. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. Iniquity here doesn't refer just to the sin, but to the guilt that's associated to it. He says the guilt is bound up. It's tied up. It's restricted. Put it another way. Their guilt is bound to them. They can't get away from it. They can't escape it. Yahweh tied it to them. And he's not going to untie the knot. And his sin is stored up. The term here refers to storing up or keeping. Keeping something for a definite purpose. And you can keep something for the protection of that item. Or you can keep something for a sinister reason. When the Pharaoh of Egypt ordered that all the firstborn be killed, Moses' mother hid him. She concealed him. Same term. She concealed him to protect him. Proverbs 1.11 says, The wicked conceal themselves to ambush the righteous. There's a sinister reason for concealing. Yahweh, speaking through Hosea, says their sins are stored up. Protected. They're protected for a purpose. What is that purpose? So that God can judge them. So that God can pay them the penalty that they're due. Notice verse 13 again. The pains of childbirth come upon him. Anybody have a concern about that statement? What's weird about that statement? Yeah, child pains will come upon him. That's a little weird. That's not actually what he's intending to say there. It's just the effect of the translation. Yeah, I think the way we would look at this, if you look at verse 13 again, it says, He is not a wise son. The he there refers to son, and it also refers back to him. He is not a wise son. Ephraim is not the is not the mom that's experiencing child pains or experiencing labor. This is a picture of the child who is unborn, and the child pains are beginning. So the pain there is a reference to the pain that they're going to experience in judgment. But Ephraim is pictured as the child. And the child is referred to as being unwise. Another way to say, he's unskilled at living. Well, that seems kind of obvious. He's not born yet. Of course he's unskilled at living. But why is this child called unwise? Verse 13 again. 
For it is not the time that he should delay at the opening of the womb. The child tries to do the impossible. He tries to avoid being born. The birth is the beginning. It's started. And he tries to refuse. And he says, no, 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 no. I don't, no, I don't want to go. I want to stay here. Which is completely absurd. No child has the ability to do that. How? It's impossible. And that's exactly his point. Ephraim is trying to avoid the judgment. They're trying to stop what's impossible. Their sin has been stored up. It's waiting. It's coming. There's nothing they're going to do about it. And it's completely foolish for them to think that they're going to somehow escape this conclusion. Judgment will come. And yet they continue on, pretending like they have nothing to fear. Like there's nothing coming for them. Look at verse 14. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from the power of death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Now, if you're reading the NASB, verse 14 starts with four questions. How many of you have four questions at the start of verse 14? Okay. If you're reading some others, you may not have four questions. You'll have two. The first two are just statements, right? The two first two statements, let me go there. The first two statements, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, shall I redeem them from death, in the Hebrew text are not questions. They are questions in the Greek translation, but not in the Hebrew text. Those are statements in the Hebrew text. So why, what's the difference? Well, if you read them as statements, they say, I will ransom them from the power of Sheol, and I will redeem them from death. If you read them as statements, as the Hebrew text indicates, they are promises of future restoration. They're promises of mercy in the future. But if you take them as questions, shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol, that would be the grave, the implied answer is no, they don't deserve it. You just said you're going to wipe them out. Shall I redeem them? Shall I purchase them from death? I think these statements are just that. They're statements. I, I would prefer the Hebrew text over the Greek. And so these are unequivocal promises of mercy. And to be sure, that's a very difficult interpretation given the context. But that's just another reason why I think we should go with that one because the easier reading is usually the wrong one. Scribes were likely to make it easier to read, not harder. And so I think the Greek translation here amended it to make it easier. This is talking about a future promise of restoration. This is not promising that they will avoid the judgment. These are promises that God in the future will redeem them. And the next two questions are the results of that promise. O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Anybody know where this is quoted? 
Someone said something. I, I just hear... Yes, Paul references it. He, res, he refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The context there is Christ has died and has been resurrected and therefore you too will be resurrected. And so the result of this promise of future restoration is that death and the grave will have no power. That's a future promise to those in Ephraim who are still faithful. Those who are faithful and will be carried off into slavery. But it is not a promise that they're going to avoid judgment. Notice the end of the verse. Compassion will be hidden from my sight. The, for, the Hebrew says exactly what it says there. There will be no compassion. There will be no comfort. There will be no mercy here. This judgment is coming. Verse 15. Though he flourishes among reeds. And again, he here refers to Ephraim. Ephraim is described as flourishing. And again, this is a difficult phrase. The ESV, I think, is closer with their translation. It says, though he may flourish among his brothers. Why the difference in translation? Well, if you read the Hebrew in a very wooden fashion, this is what the Hebrew says, because he will be fruitful son brothers. Son, S-O-N, not sun in the sky. So just reading it, the term son is out of place. It's the word bin. The NASB corrects this by changing two words. They change the word son, bin, into the preposition among. And to do that, all they have to do is add a little, what looks like an apostrophe. It's a yod. And they add it into the middle, and bin becomes bane, which means among. It's a preposition. And then the NASB trans takes the word for brothers and adds a letter to the end of it, and it becomes um, it becomes the word for read. So they make two emendations to the text to try to make it read better. But the problem is they have no justification for making those changes. They assume a textual variant on both words, and there's not a textual variant on both words. The ESV assumes a textual variant on the word bin, and they assume that a scribe somewhere just forgot a little letter. And so they translate it among brothers, which I think is the most obvious way to look at this. And it fits the context. And multiple manuscripts throughout history read that way among brothers, rather than among reeds. Did I confuse anybody on that? Everyone with me? Okay. Oh my goodness, look at the time. Okay. Ephraim flourishes among his brothers. He grows fruitful. He multiplies. He gets stronger. He grows in wealth and power. All that's about to change. Verse 15. An east wind will come, the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness, and his fountain will become dry, and his spring will be dried up. We discussed the east wind last week. It's a picture of God's judgment. The east wind comes from the east, from the desert, and it blows into Israel and it kills crops. Here, it's the wind of the Lord coming up from the wilderness. The judgment of Yahweh is going to dry up Ephraim's fountain. He's going to cut off their life. He's going to cut off their prosperity. And they're going to shrivel up into nothingness. 
into verse 15. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. What is the it? The it there is the east wind. It will plunder his treasury of every precious article. That's why that last one there is plundered of all that is precious. Article here can, is a very broad term. It can refer to weapons, garments, equipment, or anything of value or use. Precious is a term that refers to anything that's valuable, something that you want to hold on to. It's used to describe ships, houses, wealth. Nahum 2.9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold, for there is no limit to the treasure. Wealth from every kind, here it is, of desirable object. That's the idea. Anything that is precious and valuable. And it goes beyond just physical possessions. Verse 16, Samaria will be held guilty, for she has rebelled against her God for the sake of time. I'm not going to explain that. I think it's pretty obvious what that means. Their guilt has been reserved. Their penalty has been reserved. It's been stored up. Into verse 16. Their little ones will be dashed in pieces. And their pregnant women will be ripped open. He said of every precious thing. Little ones here refers to infants. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Being dashed means the word is to be shattered. It's a very grotesque practice of the ancient world to throw babies to the ground to kill them. It's mentioned in Hosea 10, 14, and 15. It's also mentioned in 2 Kings 8, 12, and 2 Kings 15, 16. Their young children will be murdered by these Assyrians when they come in. And their pregnant women will be ripped open again. I don't think I need to explain that. That's pretty obvious. When Hosea said everything that is precious will be taken away, it's exactly what he meant. Okay. Any questions? Comments? See, I told you it was going to be a really uplifting class. I told you. Questions, comments, concerns? We have one more week of Hosea. Next week we'll do Hosea 14. And then the following week we won't have equipping class. We'll have our our members meeting during this hour. So, all right, well, if no one has a question, if you want to come and ask your question in private, you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your kindness and your grace. Uh, We thank you that you reveal to us how much you hate sin, how much you hate iniquity, and that you are a perfectly holy God, and your punishments are always a just response to sin. And we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ that he took that penalty for us so that we do not have to die, that we do not have to suffer that wrath ourselves. And we ask that you would help us to do what Paul said in 1 Corinthians, to learn from their mistakes, that we would not repeat them. Please bless our worship this morning, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.